Welcome to another edition of Coping with COVID. I'm so, I hope you are all so proud of yourselves out there. You're the gladiators in the ring, fighting the fight, getting through this crisis. I used to be in the ring. Now I watch from the sidelines. I'm David Smith. I'm an angel investor here in Lansing. And Amanda Tapan and I wanted to do what we could to help you fight the good fight. And so we have special guests like Ruben and Seth today to help share their inspirational stories with you, help share their tips and tricks so you can get through this. And I want to welcome Amanda, my co-host of the program. Amanda, welcome. Hi, everybody. Well, I'm a founder too, just getting through this crazy time. And we're so excited to have a great guest on to talk about ed tech. I know that's a trend that's come up through several of our talks. So we're really going to dive deep into it today. Great to have you here, Amanda. And then Ruben, welcome to the program, Ruben. Thank you, Ruben Levinson, Washington Avenue Ventures, and work very closely with Seth here at Linco Language Labs. And Seth, welcome to the program, Seth. Hey, David, great to be here. And Seth is the founder of Linco Language Labs. Seth, what does Linco do? So we're an adaptive online language learning platform for schools. So the way that it works is when instructors want to give assignments to their classes, specifically language classes, we can make predictions on what parts of the language students know. And then we make recommendations to instructors on here's what the students need to focus on. So it sounds like you're really helping the students learn languages much faster than the existing solutions out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we think about how we actually learn, I mean, languages or really any other subject, the way that it's been for really ever is kind of like a factory where the students all come in, they learn the same thing from the same instructor, the same exact way, they get the same homework, they answer the same homework assignment questions. But the problem is like every student's different and you know we know that and every student's going to learn a different way. So there are some things that students need to focus more on, some things that they can speed through a little quicker and so we wanted to build a solution that could adapt to that, where if you're going through the first few homework problems and you're doing really well, then we can speed ahead. Whereas if there's things that students are really you know, struggling with, then we can focus on that a little bit more. And you know, before technology, that wasn't really feasible because as an instructor, you have 110 students and how are you supposed to come up with an assignment for each one of them? Well, with technology, we can actually do that. And so that's what we've been working on. So it's like everyone gets their one-on-one their -on -one plan. Exactly. I mean, essentially, yeah, everybody gets kind of that, uh, like almost a personal tutor is what we're trying to aim, or at least that same experience. That's really interesting because I would almost think the opposite, that like online education, you're just creating content, putting it out there, and then it would be less individualized than being in a classroom, but you can help them individualize it outside of the classroom then, essentially too, right? Exactly. I mean, that's something that technology is so great at. I mean, think of like Netflix, you know, when I log on to my Netflix, it knows every movie that I've ever seen. It knows how well I liked it. And then it can make great recommendations on if you like this, you might also know this. Well, we can do that same thing with, you know, knowledge where it's if you know these things, you may also know this, or you will most likely not know this topic if you don't know this other one. And so using all this data that we've um, gathered from students, because every time they answer a question, we get another data point we've been able to make these predictions and really help the instructor. And the best thing is we're not even really the ones creating the content, it's still the instructors. We're just the ones that are kind of facilitating you know, the distribution of it. Seth, how'd you get the idea for Linko? So I, I was actually an awful French student in high school. I had to do the you know three, mandatory three years like everybody else. And you know I, I got through it and I was you know the C student who sat in the back and didn't wanna be there. So I went to Michigan State, I studied computer science for a couple of years. And by the end of sophomore year, I thought it would be really great to study abroad, you know, because I was doing all these, you know, STEM classes, I thought it'd be nice to do something more than, you know, just numbers. And so I told my parents, I said, Hey, I want to study abroad, I want to, you know, see the world, I thought they'd be really excited. But then they said, like, no, absolutely not. We've seen your report card, you were the straight C student, there's no way we're sending you abroad. Absolutely not. End of story. And I said, well, what if I can learn French in the three months before the application's due? 
He said, well, you haven't made much headway in three years. We don't have a lot to lose. So sure. <laughs> and, and I thought it was going to be a done deal. I thought it was going to be so easy. There's Duolingo, Rosetta Stone. I mean, there, there's all these, you know, language apps out there, but, I, and I thought it would be, you know, shoe in, but I logged on to them and they said, oh, are you beginning intermediate or advanced? And I said, well, I have no idea. You know, there are a lot of parts that I know really well, parts that I've kind of glossed over, things that I learned, you know, wrong or never learned. And so it's kind of, you know, all over. And so that was the issue where I had a vague idea of what I knew, no idea of the mistakes I made, what I need to go back and review next. And so I reached out to MSU's French department and said, do you have anybody who could help me as like a tutor? And they replied back and said, yeah, here we have a graduate student who's finishing up her degree and be happy to help. And so I started working with her one-on-one, -on -one, um, two sessions a week. Every week I could get uh, speak a little bit more and more French. My parents got a little bit more and more nervous. And at the end, they had no choice but to send me. So while I was there, I thought, well, what if we could do this? You know, the reason why I was able to get to France was because I was able to work with that tutor where she was able to figure out exactly what parts I did and didn't know and develop that individualized learning path. I thought, well, what if we could use technology to replicate that? And so that's really kind of how uh, Lingo started. And how'd you get connected with Ruben? So that was actually at one of MSU's startup weekends. So, you know, through Techstars, they have the startup weekend events twice a year, where I believe it's in 48 hours, you start from just a concept, and then you form together with the team, you work together through these mentors and um, other members of the community who contribute to it. And then at the end, you present to a panel of judges and they pick the best product or the best uh, idea. And so uh, Ruben was actually one of the mentors for that weekend. So it was actually a completely separate idea that we were working on because Linko got zero votes out of the, I think, 75 people in the room. And each person had five votes too. So it wasn't even like um, there's an issue with having like not enough votes or anything. And Linko got zero votes. So I said, all right, well, clearly we can't do that. So I... I've joined a different team where we did a Uber for tutors app. So still, you know, education technology related, but it was the idea that you could get a tutor instantly with um, that same course content. So if I'm at Michigan State and need a Calc 1 tutor, I could go on this Uber for tutor app and find other people who knew Calc 1 at MSU. Um, and so that idea won. And in fact, the grand prize was a, another trip to Paris. So I got to go back. Um, and then I reached back or then I connected with Ruben after that and said, you know, the Uber for tutor thing is great, but here's what I'm really, you know, excited about. And things just really went from there. Can you dive more into that? Like how, how did you make that relationship with Ruben? Well, um, it was really just working with him because through, you know, that weekend, you know, he was around a lot. He went with all the other teams and, you know, he worked with ours a lot. He gave us a lot of great advice with, you know, perfecting our pitch, making things simple um, and a lot of other things that he'd seen in past weekends. And so, um, you know, we got along really well. And so, you know, with Ruben being kind of the mentor, I thought, you know, he'd be a great person to go to to say, Hey, how could I, you know, really um, work on this Linko idea? And you know, he was excited about it as well. And so that's where things kind of went. Ruben, from your perspective, you you walk us through that the other side of the fence. You know, as an angel investor, you know, judging this competition, how did you get connected with Seth, and how did he stand out from the other seventy five people there? Well, the first part is all right. I was at a TechStar MSU TechStars East Lansing startup weekend. The rest of it, though, I would say he manipulated me all the way. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. Uh, Seth and I hit it off really well. I was really impressed with the the uh, pitch that they did do that they worked on all weekend and, and won. In fact, I thought I thought that Uber for tutors was a pretty neat concept. I wanted them to do it. But I had come up to him at the end and said, if you guys take this on further than the weekend, I'd be interested in getting involved and as an investor advisor or whatever you guys need. And then they that that team kind of fell apart and Seth came out and said, I had this other idea that got zero votes. How would you like to invest in this one? And, but once Seth shared it with me and I don't have any background in ed tech or language, uh, when he shared it with me and then when he introduced me to uh, an instructor that was using it, kind of the alpha version of it, 
And hearing her comments about how much better it was making her life as an instructor and how much more effective she could be really uh, grabbed my attention. And then on top of that, funny story, Seth happened to mention that he's a pilot. I had been wanting to become a pilot for quite a while. So we agreed that he could uh, mentor me on the, in the air and I would mentor him on the ground. Oh, I love that. That's great. Yeah, so I've got my pilot's license now. He had, he got me through to my private pilot, and that was a we use we use that. We actually did a lot of our training hours and stuff on the way to meetings with and trade shows for Linko Language Lab. So we've tied it right in. Isn't it hard to get a pilot's license? It was not the easiest thing I've ever done. <laughs> Depends on who you ask. Oh, okay. No, I. I actually had my pilot license before I had my driver's license. So I, I thought that driving was more difficult. Um, so yeah, he is I not a good driver. He's a much yeah. better pilot than he is a driver. I didn't know you could get a pilot's license before a driver's license. I, I was actually a flight instructor. I had to have my mom drive me to my first lesson. <laughs> but I have both now, so we're all good. Maybe the two of you can tag team this question for me. We. Raising money is a huge topic. You know, every time I talk to founders, it seems like they're looking to raise money. And and on the show, we always get questions about raising money. What are your tips out there for connecting with angel investors here in the Michigan area? I think that the first thing that you have to do is you have to have some kind of MVP. You have to show that you have to get a few users that really love it and are actually using it, even if it's you know the simplest thing ever. If you're trying to build a car, build a scooter first and then a skateboard and then a bicycle and then a motorcycle and then a car, don't build just like the final product because I see a lot of people who are going around and they say like, oh, I have this idea. And their idea is that, or at least their thought process is, I'll, I have the idea first, then I raise all the money and then I go actually build the idea and then I get the customers and then I make the money. But really, it has to be like you have the idea, you scrap together in any kind of form, like a minimal working product, and then you get a few people who absolutely love it. Even if it's, um, you know, it doesn't have to have all the bells and whistles, but it just has to be something very simple um, and actually get people using it because then you can take that traction to the investors and say, look, I already have a few people who love it rather than, uh, you know, a lot of people who like it or nothing at all. And now I want your investment money to be able to take this from the small product that works to something much better. Yeah, we learned that too, because we, I think we took Linko out to the investor market a little prematurely, but at the same time, the, the benefit and one of the reasons I was attracted to being involved in this with Seth was that uh, unlike a lot of other angel investments I've done and other companies I've worked with that uh, had to outsource all their development, all their tech. He's able to build that minimum viable product himself, and he was willing to take the time to do that. So, as an investor, I saw that, and, and that—that's really why I ended up getting deep, more deeply involved in as a co-founder and help raise the money for this. So, but you know, we might have taken it a little early, and I think Michigan was tough with ed tech. They don't really get ed tech here. Uh, angels are starting to get it now. It's like we had to educate them on ed tech to uh, get them on board. But COVID, uh, you know, it, we'll get into that more in your silver linings theme, but COVID has kind of helped with this. Yeah, I imagine more investors will be interested in reaching out uh, as soon as they hear more about it, right? Yeah, we've COVID. actually had unsolicited calls from investors right once, uh, once COVID hit, and then you saw all the headlines about the uh, higher ed and K-12 unpreparedness for un online learning, all of a sudden people were like, wait, wait, who did I see pitch something about ed tech? Oh yeah, it was Linko, and then they would call us. So we, we uh, ended up oversubscribing our seed round during COVID, which is kind of That's Congratulations, that's great. The interesting thing about education is that just education, education technology, the whole sector is, it's kind of 10 years behind when you look at any other kind of industry or sector. So whatever the leading one might be, if it's like, you know, autonomous vehicles, you know, VR and all that great stuff, education is going to be a decade behind it. And so, well, a lot of these schools are just now starting to get, you know, Chromebooks and, uh, you know, laptops and iPads into the classroom they still don't have all the infrastructure there. Um, 
you know, they're making a lot of headway. Like when I was in, you know, middle school there, we still had to go to the computer lab and, um, you know, it was like once a week and you reserve it. And now we have it where more and more schools are getting a one-to-one, you know, device to student ratio, but they're still behind. And there was absolutely no preparation for instructors to be able to take their current class and to move it online. And that ended up being exactly what Linko can really shine with. So it showed not only can Linko can perform really well, but just education technology in general is really behind. I think we'll see a lot of investment into that in the future. So I think it was like Tuesday, March 10th, our governor Whitmer declared a state of emergency. And then I think that Friday, it would have been three days later, that's when they declared working from home on Monday. What was what was happening on your on your side of the fence? When did those calls start coming in? So we were in Minneapolis for an event, actually, for the uh, Central State Language Instructor Conference. And we were panicking because we went to this conference in Minneapolis and we had so like, for example, in December um, or November, when we went to Washington, D.C. for the National Language Instructor Conference, we had around like 120 people stop by our booth. In New York in February, um, for a smaller conference, we had, I think, around 65. And then for this one, we had two. So, I mean, we showed up to this conference and nobody's there. Um, and what, so, what, what, is that, what does that feel like when you went from 60 to 120 and, you, and you're on this huge, you know, upward trajectory? And then, and then to get two, just have it completely drop off. We were panicking because we thought, you know, COVID is going to kill us because nobody's coming to these conferences. This is how we reach out. This is how we meet instructors. Nobody's doing anything. This is going to put a freeze on everything. We're, that was your we're whole done, sales right? pipeline was all this like, in-person events. And you said like, hey, these are right. stopping and we're not going to have a way to get new customers. Oh man, we were, we were really nervous. But then those two people who did come by, they, they said, oh my gosh, you guys have an online product. I need this so badly because I have to switch to online learning on Monday and I have no idea what to do. They haven't, you know, I don't have any resources. I don't know what to do. I've never done anything like this before. And so the funny thing is those two people who did stop by were kind of saying the same exact thing. I think actually we ended the weekend with four, but nonetheless, not great. The people who we talked with, um, it really kind of set off that light bulb where we realized, wait a minute, we're exactly what they do need right now. And so we went back and we found every attendee list um, or anybody who's ever given us their name ever, any email we could get our hands on. And we sent out this mass email where we said, we're gonna do two things. We're going to do a webinar on how to transition to online language instruction. And we're going to give you anybody who needs it free access to Lingo through the end of the semester. And in the first 24 hours, we had, I think 148 schools all across the country reach out and fill out that form and ask for access. Wow. So, so it was, really, we flipped it. I was just going to ask, is the general consensus that teachers really weren't prepared? Oh, absolutely. Think about it. If you're in a, uh, you know, 11th grade, you know, French instructor at, you know, in, you know, public school or private school, really online learning other than cases like Michigan virtual or places that actually specifically do it and specialize in it. Online learning is almost non-existent in like the public and private school system. Higher ed is a little bit better because, you know, there'll be for every, you know, 10 in-person classes at MSU, there might be like one online class. So there's a smattering of instructors who had experience teaching online, but I would say a, a significant majority if I had to guess, maybe, uh, you know, at least eight or nine out of 10 instructors have probably never taught online before. And there's a common mis- misconception where um, just because you have a class in person doesn't mean you can just take it online. There are a lot of things that you have to change and completely re-architect. And now they have to do this in a matter of, you know, 48 hours. And Ruben, this is what you're like fourth company that you're co-founder in or founder? Uh, kind of an addicted entrepreneur since my young days, like Seth. So I don't remember probably four, five or six, but this would be the first one that I have gotten as an investor that I've gotten this involved in. And, um, 
I, I've never done that before. Generally, I make angel investments like others, and I might be on call as an advisor to them. But this is different. I, I have a full role with Linco and handling all finance, all investors, all fundraising, legal, and then brought in another partner. Uh, I've, I've helped build the team with Seth so that he can focus on the product because this started taking off, like he said, and he can't barely keep up with the demand from the the schools. So. I'm able to help run the business side of it for him with our team. And it works out really well. Yeah. I've never gotten this involved. What, what, what's that? Are you enjoying it? Jumping in and getting. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning a lot. It's, get, being this involved. Actually, I think other angel investors should try this. They should take, take a, a few years, join one. Don't just invest in one. Actually get involved in one, take a role in one. You learn a lot as an investor. Um, going through this whole process with someone like Seth. And for me, I was I was picky. I knew what I was looking for. It wasn't just by chance that we uh, did this. I knew that I, the next time I got invested in something and got more deeply involved would have to be one where they can build their own product like Seth because I've, I've experienced the problems with outsourcing the tech, the dev. It's not fun. I feel like a lot of startups want to, they, they, they have the idea and they can't build it and they try that outsourcing route, what problems have you seen that cause? Uh, I'll let Seth answer. You know, you know, technical reasons. I just see the investor side. Yes. I mean, this is really biased, but how it's really difficult where you're responsible for this product, but you're not the one who can actually modify it or shape it. You know, you're completely 100% reliant on somebody else. When you go to, you know, one of the big things I think has really helped Linko grow is just how many, how quickly we can iterate with instructors. So where we have, um, like we have a feedback website and we have over, I think like 120, you know, ideas or suggestions that instructors can contribute and we can go and easily add those. And so when an instructor says, oh, it'd be really nice if I could sort my students by last name, you know, on the gradebook page, that's something that we can go in and add in those few lines of code and ship it out that afternoon. If you have your outsourced product, then I need to go find somebody on Upwork to do it, or I have to have my other dev do it, or I have to have, you know, somebody in some, you know, outsourced company where I'm just another client do it. And then they're going to charge a lot of money for it as well. And so. It'd you know, be different if you're well-funded or like a growth stage company who can afford to hire your in-house dev. But when you're a startup, when you're in this mm -hmm. early stage, it's it's been really valuable to have your your uh, founder be the in-house dev. And we've gotten down to a couple thousand dollars in the bank, yet our product was still constantly, um, you know, new features were still released just as if they were um, in any other case and we were able to move the product forward and gain more traction because of that which led to other investment otherwise what happens when you can't build your own product and you run out of money so now you can't hire the people who can do it um that, that's the issue that i see but again that's bias as somebody who has built their own product i'm sure for every version where you have it where the person's built your own product there are also others um you know, you can get a technical co-founder. I think that's the best thing. So you don't have to build your own product, but I think you need somebody on your team who does, not just like always exclusively outsourcing it. Well, and it's probably a competitive advantage for you uh, to be able to make those changes so quickly and take the feedback right away from the teachers and be that close to the customer while you're building the product, right? Oh, absolutely. We go to a language instructor conference. We meet instructors through the weekend and they, you know, see the product and say, oh, I love this, but it'd be just really nice if I could, you know, record audio comments here. And then a week later, the audio comments are there. So it absolutely is a competitive advantage. And I also think that being the person who, you know, works with the instructor and builds the product has been a really big advantage too, because so much can be lost in translation where, let's say I was you know, non-technical and I work with the instructors, I figure out what their vision is, and then I have to write up a product spec saying, you know, here's exactly what I want. Then I have to send it off to um, a company and then that company is going to distribute it to the you know, people who are actually developing it. And you're adding in you know, a few extra links, which a lot can be lost. Seth, I have another question for you. Um, 
So that was, you kind of walked us through the timeline with David on how you got those customers, the big jump. So is there anything you've been learning since they've been using this platform in the past two months? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so integrations we've started to really focus on. And so, for example, um, you know, when instructors log on and they need to add their students, traditionally it would be sending out a, or um, writing a course code on the whiteboard and then the students take out their laptops, they type in, you know, GW285 and it says, welcome to you know, Spanish 2. But that's really hard. And so then we had email invites where, you know, now I can send you a link and then you click it. But then we want to go even further because if they already have Google Classroom or some other software that has all their students in it, we want to be able to connect to it. And so to be able to get students onboarded and instructors really quickly, um, integrations has, have been really uh, powerful for us. How are you two feeling now? I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. It, How are it you two feeling about the like, of the company now? It's been a nonstop sprint really um, since this has hit. So it, yeah, it, it's really exciting. You know, we've scaled up our infrastructure. You know, we started with one server, now we're running four. Um, we've brought on, you know, additional developers. We've, um, we've had, like Ruben was saying, you know, we've had plenty of, you know, investors who've reached out and um, been interested in getting in kind of on the tail end of the round that we were um, just wrapping up at the time. And so, yeah, it, it's been great. There's no shortage of things to do and people to call. Yeah, we were the we were the one out pitching for what two years, Seth, and nobody really wanted to talk to us. I think we we must have pitched Linko at least like 50 times, 50, 60, 70 times. I mean, that like five minute pitch with the PowerPoint, we've done so many times. Um, and out of 50, 60, generally, would you see like two to three people saying yes, or maybe like, I, just so our audience. That might, that might be ambitious. Uh, I think, yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I would say like, I think a couple. Um, so like maybe two out of 60. So it's brutal. Um, it just becomes part of your day getting like rejected. And, you know, at first it's really um, hard because you go out, you pitch, and it looks like everybody's really excited about it. And you say, oh, like, we definitely have, you know, I'm 95% sure they're going to invest. And then they said, oh, absolutely not. No, that was no way. Um, and then you get a lot of people who want to like keep their foot in the door where it's, um, I'm interested, but like come back when you have some more traction. Okay, well, what are those milestones? We'll just, just come back when you have more traction. And so I, it would. Those because I've heard from other founders in our community that sometimes that's like the uh, soft no and you're waiting and you're like maybe close to closing your round. Um, there are a lot of people that like to do that. I would much rather have just a hard no any day um, because yeah. then at least you can move on to the next one. What you don't want is the, it's a definite maybe because then you have like 10 maybes, but they're all kind of circling around to see if somebody's going to make a move. Um, and, you know, they're trying to de-risk the investment, but for a founder, that can be difficult. So we spent a lot of, but I guess the big thing is, you know, we spent so much time, you know, pitching around, you know, Michigan, out of state, you know, Ruben spent so much time, you know, reaching out investors on LinkedIn. I mean, we tried everything. Um, and yeah, honestly, we, we, pivoted, we pivoted that a bit here, probably the last couple of months, we, we got kind of frustrated with local angels and we found that just accredited investors uh, are a very good source also. They don't have to be considered an angel who has any angel experience. I started calling out and, and getting referrals to just accredited investors and calling and saying, have you ever thought about angel investing? And Can I teach you about it? And I found they're very interested to learn about angel investing, especially when the market is going crazy. The traditional investments they have didn't feel very good at the time. They're looking for alternate investments. And the, the whole angel investing thing, they kind of heard about it. They don't really understand it. So I explained to him how you can actually meet the local founder. You can get a demo of the product. It's very different than putting money in a mutual fund or stock market. I have a, I have a background uh, as, a, as an investment advisor, so I can talk to them this way. And it helps because for them, it's just a new, new uh, avenue to invest. And it's exciting to do it with a local company that you can see, touch, and feel. That's so cool to hear you say that because David and I heard that on, in the past from others too, is that there's actually probably a lot of angel investors out there. They just don't know it yet. 
right? So yep. they could own real estate, have wealth, and you're you're sort of opening their mind to a new a new way to invest. Oh, and and the uh, due diligence, they're they're good at doing their own due diligence too, but it's not like these angel groups where it goes through months and they're looking at you know fifteen different companies at once. So. Uh, I understand the need and the the purpose of these angel groups, but we're finding at this stage it's actually a little uh, more efficient for us to talk to non-angel investors. If you were going to do it again, would you spend the same amount of time fundraising? No, we would probably do that a little different. I'd start off with these accredited investors and then go to angel groups later. Do you think having that traction with the other investors first would help get some of the angels to move quicker? Well, yeah, that traction and the whole chicken and egg thing that we all deal with is if we can get a few of those accredited investors in, Seth can then use that money to get his product to another milestone, another milestone, and then you show it to the angel groups. Yeah. But another thing that's helped us is Invest Detroit, Red Cedar Ventures. They took Linko through a lot of due diligence. And once Invest Detroit put their thumbs up on this and said, this is investable, we're ready. And Red Cedar Ventures had already done some prior and agreed to match more with Invest Detroit. That, of course, made us uh, made us a lot more attractive going back to those angel groups because they all know the type of due diligence we went through. Yeah, it's funny how that works. There is a little bit of like a like stamp of approval, or like when you get one of those big names, like people do yeah. feel like you've gone through the validation, and now they they see it differently. Yeah, we actually feel like this. If there's a Series A coming up here in the next couple of years, it'll probably be easier than the seed round was yeah. because you've been through a lot of due diligence. You've learned what you got to have in your data room. Uh, we, Seth and I and the team have a good understanding of what revenue marks we need to be at before we're ready for Series A. So it's, I actually think that one's going to be a little easier. Hopefully. Like, love if you raise that Series A. Yeah, and closing the round. That's huge. Amanda, we, quite have, close. We, have, we still have we have room for a couple more investors. We're almost there. Okay, we'll leave that out for our listeners. <laughs> yeah, once, once it uh, when it oversubscribed the 500 ask we were looking for on the seed round, we decided to raise that up a bit. So we've got a little more room now. Cool. So we're gonna hop into questions. Is that good for everybody? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So for our listeners, drop your questions in, upvote the ones you want to hear. We have we use the next half of the show for questions. This is, the, this is my favorite part of the show. You can ask these two your questions. They've been very candid, right? They're gonna they're gonna shoot it to you straight. Awesome. So our first question comes from Ida. Hey Ida. Uh, her question is she founded Automation Works Institute a cybersecurity school developing AI-powered games for personal training. She wants to know, are you investing in other ed tech companies during the crisis? Maybe that question. Sorry, say, give me the last part of it again. She has a cybersecurity school with an AI-powered gaming feature to help train others and wants to know, are you actively investing in other ed tech companies during the crisis? Oh, personally, no, I've got my hands full with Linko, so I, I'm not, but uh, if there's any collaboration that we could do, if it's ed tech, I was just actually responding to a couple people in the chat who have been bringing up their ed tech involvement, and we would love to connect with any of you that are involved in ed tech. I, I think there's always something productive we can do. Awesome. So not right now, but totally open to partnering. Yeah. Great. So next question comes from Bernard. How is Linko monetized? How are you making money, especially as school district budgets are strained? So the nice thing about Linko, well, I guess I'll answer the uh, the first part of the question. How do we make money? So there are two ways. Either the student can pay. So for example, um, you know, when you go to Michigan State and you enroll in a um, any kind of course, they're going to have a list of you know textbooks or required course materials. So maybe the textbooks, you know, a hundred dollars and then, um, you know, a few other products you have to buy or like this much. Linko is one of those like required products. And so the student would be paying. So that's the first option um, where the students pay. The second one is that the school can pay. So um, for example, in, you know, a school district, you wouldn't have, you know, the high school student paying, you would have the school district paying. And so we have a licensing, um, 
set up where they can say from 300 to 500 students, it's going to be this much per year, you know, 501 to 700, it's this much and so on. And so then that number per student will drop. What was but, your thought process on having those two options? So for the students paying um, for higher ed, that's, that's what it typically has been, um, you know, traditionally where the instructor prescribes, you know, the book or the materials and then the student pays for it. Um, it also makes it an easier sales cycle because rather than having to go through, you know, the red tape of like a higher ed institution, the instructor just says, yep, this is what I want. And then the next semester, you know, students are paying for it. Um, for the schools, the ver the one change that we did make is rather than having only um, of like a specific number for students where it's where you say like, oh, with 87 students, it's going to be exactly this much. We moved to tiers where we said from 200 to 300, it's going to be this much because then that makes it easier for schools where they don't have to track down an exact you know number down to the student. So those were kind of our two thought processes because you know, within education, there are different markets, you know, there's higher education, there's K through 12, there's, you know, continuous learning, like, um, you know, Udemy and other courses like that. And so with each of the different sectors, a different pricing model is going to be work best. And so we spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. Awesome. And for both of you from Samuel, what do you think might be the next remote ser services we'll see in ed tech? What services or products? I that's a good one. I think we're going to see a lot more on-demand tutor, or not not to go back to my on-demand tutoring groups. Um, but I do think that we're going to see a lot more um, just with video calls. I mean, look at what happened with Zoom, and you know we've been doing so much more remotely than we've done before, and so I think that we're going to see a lot more with. Um, like video conferencing and things like that. I think a lot more courses are going to be offered online after this. And so a lot of infrastructure to help with that. Another thing I think you're gonna see, and this is a little bit of uh, a preview or some foreshadowing of things Seth and I are talking about for the future with Linko is you're gonna, you're gonna see more marketplaces for education and things like you know the Amazon for your assignments or your class portal. Like there's gonna be some, I think some consolidation of ed tech too to some large platforms, which, you know, we'd like to be on the front end of that. You're talking about like, I wanna learn artificial intelligence and then there'll be a bunch of like, I'll type it in and then there'll be courses that'll have ratings and prices by them. That, yeah, that I think you're gonna start. I think online learning in general is just gonna be a booming business for a long time because of what happened here recently. And we've already seen that with like Udemy and a lot of other, so, I mean, you know, computer science, it's usually one of the, you know, quicker things as far as for, you know, technology, of course, because, you know, it is technology. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of these, you know, learn how to code online courses and things like that. I think we're going to start to see that for other things. Um, there are a lot of other things that we've started to see, like, you know, masterclass where they have, you know, chefs showing you how to cook. I think we're going to see a lot more just online um, learning options. I love yeah. those masterclass commercials. There's oh, one I know. I where I watched like yeah. or something. <laughs> exactly. And it's kind of cool. You know, seeing Gordon Ramsay teach you how to cook. And Some, it feels someday really I'll be a customer. <laughs> it feels really fragmented. I have to Google what I want. I have to read a book. I have to look at all these five different platforms, decide. Do I want to go on general assembly or masterclass? So you think you might see more consolidation and making it easier for the customer? Especially for education technology, because right now the instructor is using like six different products. And so they have it where go to Quizlet for this, go to Zoom for that, go to this, for, go to you know Edpuzzle for this, go to Kahoot for that. And so that's really difficult for the instructor because now they have to maintain, you know, six course rosters. The students need to have six logins. And we've started to see products like um, either Clever or ClassLink where they actually function as a like sign-on system between these different products. But I think that you know, as time goes on, we're going to see just more consolidation where you go to one place for you know, multiple things. It, like Ruben was saying, you know, like with Amazon, you know, if I need to buy things, I don't need to go to six different websites anymore. I just go to Amazon, it's all there. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Next question is from CJ. He wants to know who outside of the school system would be interested in your technology? Maybe spiritual facilities or multilingual companies. Have you had any interest or see other applications? Yeah, we yeah. make a comment on that because yeah. our first, our actual first customer, first revenue paying customer was not uh, what exactly we built it for. It was not higher ed. It was a language um, interpretation company. Uh, it, it was a for-profit company and they were our first customer to use it. Uh, I would say Seth gets, Seth gets nervous when I start mentioning this, but I think there's a lot of B2B uh, opportunity for large corporate uh, he's building this for the schools, but I think later we'll talk about getting this out to the for-profit worlds, the consumers in the corporations that come in from overseas and need to learn a language and they need a faster way to do it and they, or they need a specialty language for engineering or for, uh, compu for, for computer coding and you got to learn it. And then there's ESL, Seth can comment on that, but we think there's a huge market there too outside the schools. When you get down to it, it's you know, Linko can figure out what parts of the language you know, and they can make recommendations, figure out what parts you need to work on next. There's so many applications for that, whether it's like a specialty um, thing like, you know, legal Spanish or, you know, medical French or things like that. Um, for, you know, missionaries, you know, a lot of, you know, spiritual options with that. And then also, you know, B2B, you know, whether it's, you know, a large manufacturing company that needs to know, you know, specific, um, you know, vocabulary or even, for example, um, you know, airline pilots, they all have to speak English. And so, you know, everywhere in the world, in fact. And so if you're um, touching down in Russia, you're actually speaking English. And so there are a lot of, um, there's so many applications, I mean, for languages in general. And so we've added all these features that work really well for schools, but the core technology can be applied in so many different ways. So really excited to see where it can work. Awesome. Next question from David, not our co-host, David. <laughs> what are your thoughts about email marketing for customers, especially during COVID? And do you have any software that you're using to manage your customers and market to them? I think it's really hard to stand out right now. So we, we've tried that and our open rates are lower than usual right now. Uh, and I think a lot of it is just um, saturation. You know, everybody's talking, especially if it's COVID related. I mean, you open up your email inbox and you have 20 you know, emails about you know, COVID this, COVID that. And I think that we need to look at more ways to stand out. And that's something that we're still exploring. So um, don't have any great ideas with that. For marketing, I mean, there are a lot of really, really good um, you know, products out there. For us, when we were sending you know, really large scale emails, you know, like thousands at a time, we were using SendGrid. Um, but then in addition to that, there are a lot of other great things like MailChimp, uh, something else to look into um, for social media, Hootsuite. So I would just check around. It definitely depends on what you know they're trying to accomplish. I actually found the opposite. We saw our email rates go up from our really? but network in a community and we jam packed them with info to help and we shifted everything to be really positive. Um, right. So not putting COVID in the title all the time, but right, exactly. Narrative to like we're rebuilding together, and here is jam-packed content to help you. Um, but I everyone, think, I think it's tough no matter what to stand out. I right definitely now. think the uh, the quality of the message is really important. So like that makes so much sense because think about it: if you see COVID, 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 not COVID, 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 then yeah, that's going to make such a big difference. Yeah, and I imagine for, it depends on the audience, teachers are probably just so busy adjusting that they're oh, probably absolutely. less likely to open any marketing email now. Um, right. So a thought there for that. Another question from another David, who is also not the David on this show. Uh, <laughs> regulatory changes in Europe and the U.S. have made data privacy more important than ever before. What's your approach to that? So yeah, FERPA and COPA are so important. And especially when we realize like how much data can say about somebody. I mean, if you what's, look what's at- the What's the thousand foot view on those two laws you just mentioned? So basically it says it restricts who you can share data with. So um, it's very, very close to HIPAA. It's kind of the education version of HIPAA. It just means that 
you can only share educational records, which could be students' grades, students' attendance, students' disciplinary things. Like basically any information that you'd have about a student, you can only share that with um, the parents if they're under 18, not if they're over 18, and then other educational officials. And so with all of these new online products out there, there are a lot of um, new products that are getting access to student data that typically wouldn't leave the school beforehand. And so it's so important to restrict who that data is being shared with. So for example, um, we've implemented a lot of the similar best practices that we would see in HIPAA, where, because that's been so well established for a while, you know, patient data systems and uh, a lot of other things like that. So having it where, you know, the database is locked down, it's using um, encrypted traffic, you know, end to end and a lot of other things like that. Uh, in fact, one of our uh, most recent software engineering hires actually came from the health system. So he's already very, very attuned to data privacy and we've um, used a lot of those same best practices here. For other ed tech startups listening, do you have any other advice? Would you recommend hiring people from the health um, sector? How, did, how, how else should they think about it? So the first thing is just making sure that you're using, a, you're not storing more information than you need to. So um, the student privacy pledge is a really good thing to take a look at because that is a working group where they've gotten uh, some of the best practices and it says, you know, we will do this or, and we won't do that. And they encourage companies to adhere to it and a majority do. So it's probably the first place to start. Um, the second thing is, is really looking into the guidance on FERPA where it has restrictions such as, you know, you can only share student grades with you know, the instructor and the student. So a lot of things make sense, um, but it's really important just to really look at the documentation. And there are also certification processes that companies can go through as well. That's something that we're looking into and we'll be uh, completing in the near future. Awesome, thank you. A uh, Couple more questions here as we tackle the last few minutes of the show. Next up from Moody, most universities were blindsided by COVID-19 not having very good online learning classes. <laughs> Would you demand a tuition refund if they were not, if they were a half-assed online education class? Do you see universities dying or struggling? I don't know more, but. So as a, as a student who just graduated, um, you know, I'm, I'm in that boat where I can understand, there are a lot of, um, you know, my classmates who were really frustrated, but Something that I don't think that they saw that I saw because I'm working with you know, instructors on the other end is how hard these instructors worked to transition to online learning. I mean, these are people staying up all night to try to rework and retool their entire curriculum. And there were so many dedicated instructors who went above and beyond. And that's something that I don't think you see as a student because you only see like when they show up to class, right? You know, you don't see the behind the scenes. And so on the one hand, I can understand why people would be frustrated. And also some, some instructors handled it better than others without a doubt. But I think overall, I think instructors as a whole really have done their best to transition the education online. And while it's not the same, and I think that there are some things that you miss as you take a, especially when you take an in-person class and you put it online, you know, the things that you're going to miss, but I think that they've largely accomplished their goal, at least from my isolated experience with the instructors who I had and worked with this last semester, they really went above and beyond to, to make it work. And I think that that's the thing that we don't see. So yeah, it brings up a point. I don't, I don't think there's a refund in order, uh, frankly. There's a my daughter is in college out in California. You know, there's. I was talking to her about this because she pay, we pay a lot for her education out at Pepperdine, and she's. I said, you know, this is, it's a crazy topic. Should she get her money back? Should we get our money back? And yeah. we are getting a refund on housing. That's a pretty obvious one that the universities can probably react and reduce some of their housing costs. But like Seth said, and like Bernard just commented, because his wife is a French teacher who had to switch to online learning. Uh, it is what these instructors are going through is a harder challenge than they've ever dealt with. So talking yeah. refund, the colleges, the universities, the instructors are spending more time, more money, more energy to do this than they would have in a normal setting. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are some cases, there are isolated cases where instructors are not doing a great job, um, but there are review systems in place for that. You know, after every semester, I review every single instructor, you know, through MSU system. And so if there are any issues, those will be surfaced. But I think just the to have a blanket refund or something like that, say like, okay, well, we're giving, you know, half of the money back or something. Uh, I don't think that that's fair. And then also, what, what does that mean to the instructors then? Uh, we don't think you did a, a great job or, you know, we don't think you did good enough of a job. So we're taking it away. So yeah. I, you know, it's, it's really hard. Uh, and I understand the frustration. I, I quite literally, what two weeks ago was that same exact student, um, you know, frustrated with online learning. But I saw so many instances of instructors just going above and beyond to do the best that they can. Yeah, I really appreciate your empathy there. I think we sometimes focus so much on the end result or product, we forget there's so much along the way in the process. And you're seeing it from both sides. And I still got the degree too. You still got the credit, still got yeah. the yeah. you know, so I, there we go. It'd be a different conversation if they weren't going to give you your degree or they weren't going to graduate or pass you, then maybe you might want more of a refund. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but I will just as happily hang the degree on my wall with or without the last half of the semester being online. Congrats too on your degree. That's another big accomplishment. Seed fund, seed round closed, degree, all good stuff. Mm -hmm. um, exciting. Next question comes from our guy, Rick. Rick wants to know, Ruben, did you guys look at trying to raise money through AngelList? Um, and if so, what was your experience? We did not. We used AngelList a little bit, but we didn't really use, we didn't go through that. We didn't raise money through AngelList. Did we, Seth? I don't believe so. We put a profile on, but I, I don't think that we really leveraged yeah. it uh, as much as yeah, we We funder, AngelList. Uh, we, have, we have our profile built on a lot of these sites. I just, I don't know that they actually, it didn't come up much uh, here in the Midwest when we were pitching. I didn't have a lot of people ask about it, but you know, it helps to be on those. It also helps, it forces you to do all your, get very organized, get your data room organized. They ask all the right questions on those online platforms. And then you can use those as links to send out so that you are covering everything these angels would want to know. But we didn't actually get any random people coming off of that investing. It's more local uh, relationships and referrals and just mining through anything we can. If we could do it over, one thing we would probably do more of is we didn't know how uh, interested like instructors would be even in investing. We started talking to a few instructors and they get it so quickly uh, what's happening with Linko. So we've actually had an instructor come on as one of our larger seed round investors. Oh, that's great. You did also say, I think earlier, you used LinkedIn to do some outreach to those non-angels. Is that true? Or were there any yeah, just a little bit of LinkedIn um, stalking people on LinkedIn is a thing that I think everybody does. And we use it just the same to try to identify some investors or some, uh, we even just for the heck of it, we use LinkedIn to get into some early, uh, some venture groups that focus on ed tech. And we didn't expect they would invest yet. We're not, re they're not ready for us, but or we're not ready for them. But Ruben, what does that process look like? You, you went to LinkedIn and you typed in like rich guy who's not an angel? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly what we did. No, it's uh, you can. You probably usually starts out with some Google searching and looking for ed tech investors through Google, and then it brings you to their LinkedIn page. So we could also probably make a tree, or I mean, a giant graph of all of the. You know, started with this person, and then said, "Okay, we're not a good fit." Said, "All right, that's fine." But do you know anybody who this might be a good fit for? Yeah, check out these two people, and then they make the introduction. Then we go to them. Oh, I like this. Um, you know, this one invests, and the other one says, "Oh, no, not a good fit." Okay, great. Do you have anybody you think this would be a good fit for? And two more, and two more, and so um, a lot of those. You know, getting those soft or those warm introductions is so important, and finding people who you think actually may be interested in it. Because, like Ruben said, having an instructor who knew, um, you know, some of the struggles that instructors go through to say, "Yeah, I absolutely want to invest in this," or finding an ed tech investor. Um, you know, go broad, but have some kind of connection to your product. She wasn't I, even a I was thinking about those accredited investors who didn't know they were angels yet. And I'm wondering, it sounds like maybe you Googled these people and thought, hey, these people are high net worth individuals and then connected with them on LinkedIn 
and, and developed a conversation around angel investing. Is that how that went? Um, not, no, I, those people we did not find through any cold sourcing like that. Those were all warm source referrals or personal acquaintances uh, or just people in our networks that we know or that we have met uh, that weren't necessarily angel investors, but clearly accredited investors. So it sounds really important to ask hey, this might not be for you, but do you know someone interested in EdTech or do you know an accredited investor that we could speak with or meet? And just keeping that open question going leads you to more. I wouldn't recommend coming right out and saying, do you know someone interested in EdTech? Because that's going to narrow it down so small, you might not find that. But do you know someone interested in alternative investments, uh, looking at local startups, working with... um, student founders like there's a lot of questions you can ask that get people interested yeah i want to learn more about that that sounds interesting my my current investment strategy sounds a little boring compared to that (laughs) awesome great last couple questions um do you guys have any ip on your software or are you thinking about doing that getting any patent or ip so that's certainly in the pipeline. Um, you know, we focused really, especially because you know that's going to take legal and it's going to take time. And so we've really focused just developing the product. Um, and our plan is to circle back around, especially around or a little bit before Series A, to make sure that we solidify all of that. Um, so not yet, and that's been a really common question, but it's not very high risk right now as far as for. Because people think of, you know, worrying that, you know, some other company is going to take, come and take their product. But, you know, one of my favorite quotes on a startup that podcast that gets right to it is just that more companies die from, you know, suicide than murder, where, you know, you don't have to worry about another company coming and taking your product, especially in the early stage as you're building it. Just really focus on keeping your company alive and moving forward. And so rather than diverting our time and money right now to legal resources, we want to kind of defer that. Yeah, I think that in this case, if you really saw what Seth and the team have built and how many lines of code are in there and how hard it would be to duplicate, I think it's more important for me to get a life insurance policy on Seth than the IP right now. <laughs> um, all right, we'll do a quick answer to, on this last minute to our last question from Brenda. Do you see Linko as competition for teachers? Um, the Michigan virtual online learning is something districts aren't always a huge fan of. So we see Linko as the instructor's toolbox. So it should enable them to be able to do more so that they can respond to more students with better feedback and go more in depth. So it's not a replacement, um, absolutely not. Um, but it's something that can really enable instructors to have more hours of their day back. And so rather than you know spending Friday night, you know, grading you know, multiple choice questions that a computer can do automatically, let's do that. And then give them more time to respond to each student individually with you know more feedback. So no, it, it's not a comp- it's not in competition. It's more of collaboration. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Everyone, can you put your hands together? And I'm going to try something new. Don't don't kill me if it doesn't work. <laughs> hey, you two. Thank you so much for hopping on here. This has been another edition of Coping with COVID, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to our Coping with COVID series brought to you by Bamboo Detroit. If you would like to view all of our virtual episodes, you can go to www dot crowdcast dot io forward slash david silva smith again that's forward slash d a v i d s i l v a s m i t h this podcast is produced and brought to you by bamboo detroit located in the heart of downtown detroit bamboo detroit specializes in co-working space and amenities for entrepreneurs and forward thinkers bamboo detroit where we do more together because Detroit is for doers. If you would like to support our podcast, you can become a sponsor of the Doers Network. We have gold, silver, and bronze packages available. If you have a business you would like to promote, 
you will be able to reach over 10,000 listeners around the world each month at your fingertips. So if you want to reach our audience of founders, CEOs, innovators, and leaders, become a sponsor today. For more information, email us at info at bamboodetroit.com. We appreciate your support by subscribing to our podcast right here on the Doers Network. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doers Podcast, where actives grow and thrive. The Doers Podcast is produced by Bamboo Detroit Network. For more information, visit us at bamboodetroit.com.